This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery... Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. The mayor of Hereford, Germany, felt a growing sense of panic as he watched the crowd gather in the town plaza. Thousands had flocked to the city, packed into cars and huddled together in truck beds to see the so-called miracle doctor. They came in wheelchairs, on crutches, and on stretchers carried by their family and friends. They had come to be healed. The faithful waited for hours with bated breath, their eyes never leaving the balcony overlooking a nearby villa. The mayor ground his teeth as he remembered the events of only years ago when a different charismatic leader had galvanized the German population. He worried he was about to watch history repeat itself. Finally, Bruno groaning emerged onto the balcony and waved to his eager patients. The crowd erupted in applause. Everyone called out at once, begging to feel the man's healing touch. Suddenly, Bruno raised his hand and the 5,000 people below him went quiet. The mayor wondered if he'd really cured the Holzman boy's muscular dystrophy with the same simple gesture. Was he witnessing the birth of a new German messiah or the rise of the next Adolf Hitler? Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Today, we're taking a deep dive into Bruno Groning, a German faith healer. 
Bruno rose to national prominence in 1949 at the age of 43, after German newspapers reported that he had cured a young boy of muscular dystrophy. From 1949 to 1959, Bruno toured Germany, attracting crowds of up to 30,000 people. This week, we'll examine the early life of Bruno Groening and the beginnings of his career as a healer. Next week, we'll chart the peak of Bruno's popularity and accusations that he was responsible for the death of a teenage girl. We'll also take a look at the way his legacy persisted even after his untimely death. Bruno Groening felt different from the time he was a young boy. He was the fourth of seven children, and his siblings often bullied him for being overly sensitive. His father, August, was no different, and relished in beating all of his sons when they misbehaved. Seeking solace from his family, Bruno turned to nature as a spiritual refuge. Starting around 1908, two-year-old Bruno took to wandering around the woods near his hometown of Gdansk, which had recently been absorbed into the expanding German Empire. The solitude allowed him to vent his frustrations in peace and express himself in a way he never could to his father or his brothers. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, she is not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. In 2002, a study published in the Child Abuse and Neglect, the International Journal, found that children who experience psychological abuse are more likely to suffer from chronic emotional inhibition. This can cause the children to become extremely adverse to conflict and vulnerable to stress. In this light, Bruno's long walks through the woods can be viewed as a way to avoid the issues in his chaotic home. Alone among the trees, Bruno felt a sense of safety and control he couldn't find with his family. To a young child struggling to process his emotions, the welcome feeling of safety may have felt like a spiritual awakening. In Bruno's words, here I experienced God in every bush, in every tree, in every animal. Yes, even in the stones. I could stand and take it all in for hours. Time seemed to have no meaning, and it seemed to me as if my inner being expanded into infinity. It was also here that Bruno first took note of his supposed extraordinary abilities. Bruno later claimed that animals like deer, rabbits, and even wild pigs would approach him without fear in the woods. The animals seemed to be soothed by his gentle touch. Bruno's magic touch seemed to work on humans, too. After several sick neighbors who spent time in Bruno's presence quickly recovered, his mother, Marguerite, accepted his miracle healing ability as fact. Just a few years later, the outbreak of the First World War offered young Bruno a chance to put his healing gifts to the test. As the sensitive child watched the men march off to battle, Bruno vowed to use his mysterious abilities to aid the war effort. Throughout the First World War, Bruno visited German soldiers at the military hospitals near Gdansk, offering his healing presence to the wounded. 
Whether or not Bruno really had a miraculous gift for healing, the young men recovering from the horrors of war were always happy to see him. They felt less pain in his presence. They had fewer tremors, and some described feeling overtaken by a reassuring calm. To the amazement of local doctors, the wounded soldiers that spent time with Bruno seemed to recover more quickly from their injuries. Soon, whenever Bruno visited a hospital camp, reports of miracles followed. Rumors swirled of soldiers rendered deaf and blind by mortar fire, suddenly regaining their senses thanks to Bruno. One story claimed that after sitting with Bruno for several hours, soldiers crippled by severe muscle spasms were able to walk once again. Neighbors began to send for Marguerite whenever they fell ill, begging her to bring little Bruno for a visit. Some began to believe that little Bruno groaning was a saint sent by God. It's understandable that the faithful Christian townsfolk of Gdansk would attribute their recoveries to a God-given miracle, but it's possible that the soldiers and neighbors Bruno healed were benefiting from a phenomenon known today as the placebo effect. In 1997, doctors Arthur and Elaine Shapiro defined the placebo effect as any treatment, including drugs, surgery, psychotherapy, and quack therapy used for its ameliorative effect on a symptom or disease, but that is actually ineffective or not specifically effective for the condition being treated. Research has shown the placebo effect can have powerful effects on the human body. It can reduce inflammation, alleviate chronic pain, lessen the effects of major depressive disorder, and relieve both physical and psychological symptoms of PTSD. In some cases, it can even stimulate the body's immune response to destroy cancerous tumors. Essentially, Bruno Groening's miraculous healing ability may have worked because people he treated were desperate to believe that it could work. Regardless, as Bruno's reputation grew, his problems at home grew more complex. His parents began to favor him over his siblings. This stopped the beatings, but served to ostracize Bruno further from his brothers. They resented Bruno's special treatment, and their bullying only intensified. The abuse prompted Bruno to leave home as soon as he could. In 1918, at age 12, he jumped at the chance to apprentice with a local businessman after the war ended. Bruno spent two years working for the businessman before his father, a bricklayer, pressured him to abandon his business studies. He wanted his son to learn a dependable trade instead. In 1920, Bruno began a new apprenticeship as a carpenter, but the economic instability of the post-war period disrupted his plans. Due to a drought in new orders, the carpentry firm offering Bruno work was forced to close. At 15, Bruno was just three months away from completing his training. Rather than return home and give up his freedom, Bruno survived on his own by taking whatever work he could find. For a time, Bruno bounced around from job to job. He loaded freighters as a dock worker, repaired clocks and radios, and eked out a living as a locksmith. 
all the time from 1921 to 1927, teenaged Bruno continued to visit sick neighbors and wounded war veterans who sought him out for healing. Though not everyone who came to see Bruno achieved a miraculous recovery, his aura of spiritual self-assurance soothed them and bolstered their faith. His kind heart and relentless work ethic earned Bruno the admiration of a young woman named Gertrude. In 1927, at the age of 21, Bruno married Gertrude, and the couple moved into a small home in Gdansk. Gertrude loved Bruno, but considered herself a practical and rational person. She'd heard the stories about her husband's miracle healing ability, but largely dismissed them as unprovable vagaries. After they married, she encouraged him to set the practice aside in order to focus on his career and family. Though Bruno felt he had been called by God to heal the sick, he also wished to honor his wife, and so he set his healing practice aside for a time. For the next few years, he only occasionally offered healing when friends or neighbors sought him out directly. The couple flourished. In 1931, Gertrude gave birth to their first son. 25-year-old Bruno overflowed with joy as he welcomed young Harold Groening into the world. Unfortunately, Bruno and Gertrude could hardly have chosen a worse time to begin their family. In 1931, Germany was suffering from mass unemployment and runaway inflation. Businesses were failing throughout the country, and it took a wheelbarrow's worth of Reichsmarks to buy a single loaf of bread. Germans burned their banknotes for warmth because the notes were worth less than kindling. The Social Democrats and Communists in Parliament ultimately failed to find an effective solution to the crisis. Meanwhile, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis toured the country, blaming every problem on Germany's Jewish financiers and the Bolsheviks. Their message resonated with a desperate public. In 1932, just a year after Harald Groening was born, the Nazi party secured a majority of the seats in parliament. A man of faith, Bruno viewed the violent clashes between the Nazi and communist paramilitary forces as a battle between good and evil for the soul of Germany. As the Nazis secured their hold on the German parliament, Bruno feared that desperation would force the German people to abandon God. He could feel Germany slipping further and further into darkness. He found the period of political turmoil deeply troubling, but remained focused on supporting his family. He took whatever work he could find, and at the insistence of his wife, Gertrude, refrained from practicing faith healing. But even so, Bruno resented that he couldn't do more to help Germany as his people suffered through economic despair. By the time Bruno's second son, Gunther, was born in 1939, the Second World War was on the horizon, and his concerns kept him up at night. To make matters worse, shortly after Germany invaded Poland, Bruno's nine-year-old son, Harald, contracted a life-threatening illness. Bruno wanted to heal their child, but Gertrude placed her faith in the powers of modern medicine and sent Harald away to be looked after by doctors. 
Sadly, despite the doctor's best efforts, Harold's condition continued to worsen, and he died in the early months of 1940. Bruno's inability to cure his own son's illness caused him a great deal of pain, and he began to resent his wife for barring him from using his faith healing. He was ashamed that Gertrude doubted his abilities and blamed her for Harold's death. Though they stayed together to focus on raising Gunther, their relationship soured. The gentle man Gertrude had loved was consumed by grief, becoming bitter and depressed. They were physically torn apart in 1943 when 37-year-old Bruno was called up to serve in the German armed forces. He would soon find himself on the front lines of the most hellish war in human history, fighting for a leader he viewed as the embodiment of evil. Coming up, Bruno Groening narrowly escapes a court-martial and tests his faith against the horrors of a Soviet gulag. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. Now, back to the story. In 1940, Bruno Groening lost his nine-year-old son, Harold, to a terminal illness. Believing that he had miraculous faith-healing powers, Bruno blamed himself for not saving Harold. Three years later, at the lowest emotional point in his life, the 37-year-old was conscripted into the German army to serve in World War II. While his wife Gertrude and younger son Gunther remained behind in Gdansk, Bruno went to the eastern front of the war to be trained as an infantryman. Bruno's strict Christian faith and pacifist ideology soon brought him into conflict with the Nazi top brass. Bruno was willing to do his duty as a soldier, but as a self-avowed pacifist, he refused to carry a weapon, even in basic training. He sincerely believed that his faith forbade him from doing violence to others. But his stubborn refusal to participate in rifle training exercises enraged his superiors. His officers threatened him with a court-martial for refusing to obey orders. If convicted, Bruno faced execution at the hands of a Nazi firing squad. Fortunately, Bruno had demonstrated exemplary conduct aside from his refusal to participate in combat training and was able to convince the military brass that his beliefs were sincere. Ultimately, the military tribunal cleared Bruno to serve as infantry support. Bruno was sent to the front late in the spring of 1943. 
Though he refused to participate in combat, he found other ways to make himself useful. He restocked ammunition for the artillery, ran messages between battery positions, and used his technical expertise to repair and maintain the anti-tank guns. He also did what he could to alleviate the suffering that surrounded him. Stationed in a remote village along Russia's western border, Bruno rescued Russian villagers from starvation by convincing his commanding officer to share the army's surplus rations and supplies with the families sheltering in the village. In his free time, he sat with wounded and shell-shocked soldiers, reading to them from the Bible. Bruno strongly believed that the soul of man existed in a state of eternal struggle between good and evil. He saw God as the ultimate manifestation of spiritual good. He saw a connection between a healthy physical body and a spiritually healthy soul. Bruno taught his small, battle-weary congregation that illness was the physical result of evil corrupting man's soul. As time went on, his sermons became more polished. He implored his fellow soldiers to put their total trust in God's power. Bruno promised that by focusing on the physical sensation of their pain, they could channel God's healing stream, or hailstrom, into their bodies. If they could master this process, Bruno claimed they could drive out the evil spiritual energy and recover from any sickness. According to some accounts, Bruno's words had a powerful effect. Survivors of the war interviewed later offered plenty of anecdotes in support of Bruno's healing abilities. Their testimonies credited Bruno with curing everything from severe migraines to muscle tremors, limps, and blindness. Though unknown at the time, these physical symptoms have since been linked to cases of war-induced post-traumatic stress disorder, At the time, PTSD was not widely understood by the medical community. In 2005, however, a study on psychological injury in the First and Second World Wars found that symptoms included uncontrollable shaking and disturbances of speech, vision, hearing, or gait, all without a detectable organic basis. For example, there were soldiers who developed blindness after a gas attack and others who became deaf after enduring long periods of shellfire. Being buried alive for hours or days could induce uncontrollable shaking, trembling, or spasms. For some soldiers, Bruno's faith healing would have been the closest thing to psychological treatment they would receive for their ailments. One survivor recalled suffering from horrifying night terrors until Bruno spoke with him. Bruno said a prayer for the soldier and asked him if he believed that God had the power to heal his suffering. The soldier said he believed and, after speaking with Bruno, claimed he never suffered another nightmare. But nothing could protect the soldiers from the eventual outcome of their failed offensive. When the Red Army finally broke through the Eastern Line, Bruno was caught in the crossfire. He became one of the thousands of wounded German soldiers taken prisoner by the Soviets. He spent the final months of the war in a Soviet prison camp east of Poland. No sooner had he recovered from his bullet wound than the Soviets put him to work breaking rocks and digging graves. Though Bruno had been forced to fight for the Nazis, he believed that he had been called by God to help heal all people. 
In the Soviet prison camps, he found himself surrounded by physically and psychologically shattered prisoners of war. Thinking back to the time he'd spent as a child among the wounded veterans of the First World War, he resolved to do all he could to aid his fellow prisoners. From November 1944 until his release in December 1945, Bruno's determination to help the other prisoners gave him the motivation he needed to survive the brutal conditions of life as a Soviet prisoner. During the frigid winter, Bruno slept on the frozen floor of the uninsulated barracks. He frequently skipped his own meals, instead sharing his rations with other starving prisoners. At night, he led the others in prayer and offered his healing presence to the sick and dying. His hard work in the labor yards and his calm, compassionate demeanor helped him develop a friendly relationship with some of the camp guards. Over time, he was able to secure better clothing, better food, and better shelter for his fellow prisoners of war. Though conditions in the prison camps could be brutal and unforgiving, prisoners were afforded a few freedoms so long as they refrained from causing trouble. One of the most precious of these was the privilege to gather freely in the evenings. There were many German prisoners who, prior to the war, had been accredited experts in other fields. The camps were filled with artists and authors, theology professors, and historians. These men often entertained themselves and the other prisoners by staging impromptu lectures in the barracks. During these talks, Bruno saw men whose spirits had been ravaged by war come alive with a renewed sense of purpose. In their shared love of history and art, music and literature, Bruno saw God's divine spirit at work. By sharing his religious philosophies with his fellow prisoners, Bruno felt his own soul begin to heal. Later, Bruno credited his survival in the Russian labor camps to his faith in God. He claimed that he had avoided starving to death by drawing sustenance from the miraculous spiritual energy he called Hailstrom. In December of 1945, seven months after Germany had officially surrendered to the Allies, the Russians loaded their German prisoners of war onto a train bound for Poland. After surviving unimaginable horror, Bruno Groening was finally going home. Two long years after leaving his hometown, 39-year-old Bruno returned to Gdansk. Overjoyed, he wept as he reunited with Gertrude and their six-year-old son, Gunter. Sadly, the family's happy meeting was short-lived. Since Germany had relinquished control of Poland, Bruno's hometown of Gdansk became a Polish territory rather than a German one. Unfortunately, Poland's new leaders weren't thrilled at the idea of German soldiers residing on the Polish side of the border. Shortly after Bruno returned to Gdansk, all German men were expelled from the country. After hours of tear-filled debates, Gertrude and Gunther decided to stay behind in Gdansk until Bruno could find them a new home in Germany. So once again, Bruno bid a tearful goodbye to his wife and son before boarding a train bound for the West. He went to Dillenburg, a small town in the West German state of Hessen. Bruno found there was plenty of work to be had there as a bricklayer. He rented a small, shabby flat in the industrial part of town and set to work rebuilding his life. In 1947, at the age of 41, Bruno sent for Gertrude and Gunther to join him in Dillenburg. 
They lived together happily, and for a time, it seemed that the worst was behind them. They had lived through two world wars, the worst economic collapse in world history, and the death of their eldest son. But they were still standing. Perhaps at long last, they would finally be able to heal. Sadly, fate was not finished with Bruno groaning. Soon, another tragedy would shatter his family and set Bruno on the path to his destiny. Coming up, Bruno Groening loses a family and finds a following. And now back to the story. After surviving the Second World War and confinement in a Soviet prison camp, 41-year-old Bruno Groening moved with his wife and son to the West German town of Dillenburg in 1947. Bruno had long believed that he was a faith healer, but he put his spiritual calling behind him and found work as a bricklayer. From a cramped apartment in Dillenburg's run-down industrial district, he built a new life for his family. But just as the family began to settle into their new, peaceful routine together, Bruno's eight-year-old son, Gunther, contracted a life-threatening illness. To Bruno, it was like reliving his worst nightmare. Seven years earlier, his first son, Harald, had perished after a long battle with a terminal disease. The cruel twist of fate tore him apart. He wondered why he couldn't heal his own child when he had healed so many others with the power of God. Bruno's wife, Gertrude, had always doubted Bruno's spiritual healing ability. Over his objections, she chose again to place her faith in modern medicine and sent Gunther away to be looked after by doctors. But in the waning days of 1948, Gunther Groening succumbed to his illness. Like his brother Harald before him, Gunther died shortly after his ninth birthday. Few marriages are strong enough to survive the loss of a child, and the Gronings had lost two children in 10 years. After Gunther's death, Bruno's relationship with his wife deteriorated. Bruno staunchly believed that his powers could have saved both of his sons, if only his wife would have trusted in his ability to heal them. His resentment towards Gertrude festered, and after she again attempted to forbid him from practicing his healing, they separated in 1949. Abandoning his grief-stricken wife, Bruno traveled to the Ruhr district and devoted himself fully to studying the Bible and healing the sick. He traveled from house to house, visiting anyone who requested his presence. For no charge, he shared the healing technique he had perfected during his time in the Soviet prison camp. By now, he had a practiced hand. When he attempted a healing, Bruno asked the sick person to sit with their back straight and their palms turned up to the heavens. He claimed that they had to keep their arms and legs uncrossed in order to avoid disrupting the flow of God's healing stream. While in the past, he'd asked his patients to dwell on the pain or discomfort caused by their illness, Bruno now began telling them to concentrate on something pleasant instead. He would then attempt to channel God's hailstrom to the sources of illness in their bodies. Some of those healed by Bruno claimed that after a few moments of quiet concentration, they felt a warm, tingling current flowing to the source of their pain. Afterwards, they were completely healed. 
As Bruno traveled through the Ruhr district, word of his miraculous healing spread to neighboring towns. Eventually, rumors of Bruno reached the ear of a wealthy engineer named Hulsman. His nine-year-old son, Dieter, suffered from progressive muscular dystrophy. Desperate for hope, Hulsman wrote a letter to Bruno, inviting him to attend to Dieter at the family's villa in the city of Hereford. Hulsman explained that his son's illness had left him unable to stand or walk. The boy had been bedridden for 10 weeks. Bruno accepted Hulsman's invitation, arriving at the engineer's home in March of 1949. Hulsman watched in awe as Bruno sat with Dieter for the better part of a day. Bruno channeled God's hailstrom into the boy's upturned palms and eventually proclaimed him healed. Hulsman could hardly believe it when Dieter suddenly stood and took several hesitant steps. Word of Dieter's impossible recovery spread through Hereford, and the event was swiftly hailed as a miracle. Hulsman shared his account of the faith healing with several journalists, and a popular German tabloid dubbed Bruno the Miracle Doctor. Astounded by Bruno's abilities, Hulsman invited him to stay in his home and minister to all those who came seeking healing. Visitors, well-wishers, and sick patients flocked to Hereford. In the weeks that followed, as word of the miracle doctor spread far and wide, the steady stream of ailing pilgrims became an overwhelming flood. Germans suffering from crippling disabilities, chronic illnesses, and inexplicable aches arrived by the busload. Setting up a makeshift camp on the plaza in front of the Hulsman residence, they waited patiently to catch a glimpse of the enigmatic miracle worker. By June of 1949, Hereford's population swelled as thousands of Germans made the pilgrimage to seven Wilhelmsplatz. Arriving in Hereford on June 24th, Manfred Lutgenhorst, a journalist for the Münchner Merkur, described the scene, writing, there were almost 1,000 people standing in front of the two-story house in Wilhelmsplatz. It was an indescribable picture of suffering. According to Manfred, the crowd included countless numbers of people in wheelchairs, others brought there by their relatives, blind, deaf, and dumb, mothers with mentally and physically disabled children, almost 100 cars, trucks, and buses were parked around the square, and all had come from far away. Members of the crowd eagerly shared stories of the miracles they'd witnessed. One woman claimed she'd seen five men arrive at the plaza crippled and unable to walk only to stand and walk away unaided hours later. Another woman told Manfred of a man she'd met the day before, who had approached her weeping tears of joy, shouted that Bruno had healed his sight, and then described the colors of her handbag to her as proof. In recent years, psychologists and researchers seeking to understand the groaning phenomenon have attributed his explosive popularity and the sudden national fascination with his miracle healings to a kind of nationwide post-traumatic stress phenomenon. As Jennifer Kapczynski argues in her book, The German Patient, the case of the miracle doctor exemplifies the peculiar dilemmas surrounding the post-war German need for physical and psychic recuperation. 
In a nation deeply traumatized by war, the rise of Bruno Groening raised difficult questions about Germany's real and imagined ailments. Some researchers believe that Bruno's unique intuition allowed him to perpetuate the sort of mass persuasion used by the Nazis. He treated the masses psychologically, providing them a means to deal with their grief, guilt, and stress. Just as he had counseled soldiers struggling with PTSD, he was able to provide real hope to the struggling citizens of Germany. It's possible that this psychological treatment resulted in real physical symptoms being cured for many of his acolytes. At the time, however, many worried about the appeal of a charismatic man who inspired fanaticism. After all, by 1949, only four years had passed since the Third Reich committed the worst genocide in modern memory. So Bruno attracted his fair share of critics as well as admirers. The mayor of Hereford watched with mounting concern as a newly anointed German messiah waved to a crowd of thousands of hysterical Germans from a balcony. Seeking to stem the tide of pilgrims flooding Hereford streets, the city council enacted an emergency ordinance barring Bruno Groening from the continued exercise of his activities. They warned him that he would be fined severely should he appear again on Holzman's balcony. When the believers gathered in the plaza learned of the ordinance, they accused the mayor of violating their civil liberties in an effort to silence Bruno Groening. Fearing an uprising of an elderly, chronically ill, and physically disabled crowd, the city council backed down, and Bruno was allowed to address his followers. At 11 p.m. on June 25, 1949, Bruno emerged once again to address the crowd from the balcony. He smiled and yelled to the thousands of admirers gathered in the plaza, saying, My dear seekers of healing, your praying to and imploring the Lord God was not in vain. He then told the crowd that those who had faith in God would receive his healing and declared everyone gathered below the balcony healthy in the name of God. Finally, he warned the crowd to beware the corrupting influence of evil and called on them to express compassion for their fellow man. The crowd reveled until two in the morning. Bruno had won his first skirmish with city officials, but the battle was just a small taste of the legal challenges he would face throughout the next decade. In the following weeks, the city of Hereford would strike back against Bruno. Eventually, he would be forced to leave the district, but the groaning phenomenon could not be contained. The miracle doctor had cured the sick in Hereford, and the rest of West Germany was begging to be healed. Thanks for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next week with part two of Bruno Groening's story. Following the miracle at Hereford in 1949, Bruno's following exploded. Over the next decade and beyond, he attracted the attention of fiercely devoted followers, skeptical medical experts, and wary government officials. For more information on Bruno Groening, amongst the many sources we used, we found Greta Hostler's biography, Here is the Truth About Bruno Groening, especially helpful to our research. 
And as always, you can find more episodes of Cults as well as all of Parcast's other shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by Nick Hanley, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.